There's a Gallup poll that showed that less than 1 in 20 New Year's resolutions are still in effect or even thought about by February. So they don't have a whole lot of uh, uh, effectiveness to them. But Gallup poll didn't restrict its survey to Christians. And for Christians, I think there's a different uh, scoop on this thing. And I really think that resolutions can have, should have, maybe must have a role in our life. Though New Year's is nothing, you know, there's nothing special about that. But it's just a good time to think about it. Let's look at a resolution that Daniel made. Chapter 1, and I'll just read a couple verses here and then explain it. In fact, I think I'd rather explain it than read a couple verses. The situation here is this. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, this powerful, powerful nation, had conquered Israel. And as most nations tried to do back then, they wanted to use Israel, uh, they wanted to make Israel a part of their empire. They wanted Israel to, for all intents and purposes, now be Babylonian. And so Nebuchadnezzar had a scheme, and it wasn't that original. We know of other nations, the Assyrians did this. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar's scheme was to take the best and the brightest of the young men of Israel, to train them in Babylonian ways, to teach them the Babylonian language, to wine and dine them, give them the best of Babylonian life, and really convert them to the Babylonian way of life, and then appoint them to be leaders of Israel. And they would, in turn, bring Babylonian culture to the people of Israel, and eventually, Israel would be an extension of Babylon. In fact, eventually, if this plan were to work out, Israel as a separate people, the Jews as a separate people, would, would disappear. They would have become like the Hittites were, and the Jebusites were, and the Amalekites were, and the Canaanites were, and the Terminites were, and the Brigadites were. All of them have disappeared. You don't hear about them anymore. They're not nationalities anymore because they got absorbed into someone else's culture. Well, the Jews would have been absorbed. That was the purpose for the whole thing. Most of the Jews accepted this. The king laid before them the best food, the best culture, the best housing, the best of everything. really was bribing these folks. But Daniel wouldn't go along with it. Daniel wouldn't go along with it. The food, no doubt, and the wine, no doubt, had been offered to idols, and it was against the teachings of the Jews to eat any food that was offered to idols. And so Daniel here decided not to go along with this program. And that brings me to verse 8 here. They were even given new names by Nebuchadnezzar. Part of their changing of their identities. But Daniel resolved, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine that Nebuchadnezzar was setting before him. He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. And then the story goes on. In the end, Daniel, or God ends up blessing Daniel. Daniel becomes a conduit for divine revelation to Nebuchadnezzar. Gets a high place in the... Uh, in the uh, empire, and doesn't have to defile the teachings of God to do it. In fact, God uses Daniel as a key way by which God preserves the national identity of the Jews, which had to be preserved. But it happened because there was one who dared to stand out from the crowd, who resolved to be different. Let's pray. Lord, I, 
I thank you for your word at the beginning of this year. I thank you for the way that your word came forth last year. I thank you, Lord, for the way that it's been bearing fruit in my life and for the way it's been bearing fruit in many people's lives. And Lord, I would pray that more than anything else, you would guard me and guard all of us from any kind of any kind of sense of self-sufficiency whereby we would ever think that it's our words that do the kingdom work and that it's our music that does the kingdom work. It is not so, Lord. It is you that does the kingdom work. And if you're pleased to use us, then you're pleased to use us. And if you're pleased to use Balaam's donkey, then you're pleased to use Balaam's donkey. And you can have your way and do what you want. And we just ask you, Lord, to use this vessel this morning to bring forth your word and challenge us, Lord. God, I pray that your spirit would be operating to bring conviction here like you've been operating to bring conviction in my life, Lord. And change us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Resolutions. How do you want 1995 to be different than 1994? How do you want you to be different in 95 than you were in 94? Or maybe we should give this a little bit of a different twist. Unless you were totally conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in 1994, which I submit is unlikely. <laughs> How does God want you to be different in 95 than you were in 94? Since God is always moving us to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. There is something in your life, although for some of you it may be harder to find than for the rest of us, but there's something in your life that I'm sure is not exactly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and the Lord would have you change that, what is it? What is it? Or maybe among the many, many, many things in your life that need to be transformed, what would the Lord have you work on right now? What is your project for 1995? It's a good question to ask, a serious question to ask. For some of you, it might be that the Lord would have you to spend more time at home. And invest more of your life in the people that you're responsible for. Spend more time with your husband and your wife. And spend more time with your children. More quality time with them. Play a little bit more and work a little bit less. Maybe that's what the Lord would have you grow into in 1995. For others, maybe it's some kind of an attribute. Like honesty. Maybe you're the type of person, you're just becoming aware of this. You know, the Lord works at different, different things in different stages of our life. You're aware that the Lord is now dealing with you about being honest. You tend to put on a facade. You hide behind a mask. No one ever really knows you. You're never vulnerable. You're always together on the outside, but mixed up on the inside. You keep people at bay, which is what the Bible calls hypocrisy. And you're just now becoming aware of the fact that you do it. You do it instinctively, but you do it. You choose to do it. And the Lord's saying, let's make you a more honest person, a more vulnerable person, a more real person in 95. That's a good project, a real good project. For others of us here this morning, maybe the issue is something like this. Maybe the Lord is saying, I want you to get serious about your faith. Maybe the Lord is really saying to you, I do not want to be in the same priority place that I was in 94 during 95. I want to be number one in 95. Maybe up to this point, your Christianity has been sort of an addendum to the rest of your life. It's been sort of a footnote. It's been there, you've liked it, you've used it when it was convenient, but it's never had that, kind of a, that much of a priority, and you never maybe even noticed it till recently the Spirit is beginning to move on you and convict you, 
and saying, I want you off the fence and I want you into the playing field. I want you out of the vacation resort and I want you into the battlefield. I want you to get serious. Maybe the Lord is moving you in 95 to get passionate about your faith. To switch the gears from being the ordinary status quo, mediocre Christian to being a passionate, vibrant, committed Christian. Maybe the Lord's dealing with you more specifically to get committed to a church body. Maybe you've never been committed to a church body. Do you know how many people in, in, the, in, the, in, in Christendom in America are not committed to a church body? They're free floaters. And there's a time where you've got to be a free floater when you're looking for a place where the Lord wants you to plug in. But maybe the Lord is saying, it's time to plug in. You've dated enough churches, now get married. And maybe it's not this one, but it's someone. So you can begin to grow, because unless you're committed someplace, rooted someplace, you're not going to grow anyplace. Maybe the Lord is dealing with you about some quality time with Him. I would submit that probably most of us here could use help in that area. Maybe the Lord is moving in your life to say, I want more time than what you've been giving me in prayer, because unless you talk to me and, I, and you let me talk to you, how am I ever going to know you? How are you ever going to know me? How are we going to have a relationship? Where's the love and the life and the vibrancy going to come from? I want more time. I don't know what it might be. It could be a lot of different things. Maybe the Lord's trying to separate you from a relationship that you have that you know is, is blocking. You know is blocking your relationship with God. It's just is there. Most of the time, we know exactly what it is that God wants to get rid of. And the reason we search so hard is because we want something else. <laughs> Can someone say amen? Isn't that true? We know exactly what it is, but we pray around the bush because we don't want to look into the bush. Oh, Lord, what would you have me? I'm seeking your will. And all the while, there's this. But we don't want to get rid of this. So we say, well, what about this? Here, yes, Lord, I can offer you this. You know? But all the while, it's this. And we know, most of the time, we know exactly what the Lord's working on. If we're honest with ourselves, what is it? Maybe the Lord's trying to separate you from some activity that you have or some, some uh, attitude that you have, some habit that you have. Maybe the Lord's saying, you know what, this is clogged up. This has gotten in the way. This has been a nuisance for too long. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. What is going to bring that into reality? Get a picture now. Get a picture of what you will be like if, in fact, you obey the Lord in this, where the, where the Lord is moving on you right now. What are you going to look like? Can you get a picture of yourself? As you think in your heart, so are you, the Bible says. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Get a picture of what you will be like if you are filled with, if you've made this resolve to love more than you've loved in the past or yield more than you've yielded in the past or give more than you've given in the past. You know, maybe the Lord's dealing with some of us here this morning about how we waste our money. And the Lord's saying, you know what, you could really use that extra cash to help somebody else out in the body of Christ or wherever. Maybe the Lord's dealing with that. But what will you look like if you do that? How will your life be different? Get a picture of yourself as a changed person. Because if you can't see yourself doing it, you're never going to do it. And now I've got to ask this question. What will bring that into reality? What is going to bring that into reality? Get the picture in your mind. This is where the Lord, this is what it would look like for you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in this area of your life. You've got a picture of it. Now what's going to make that real in 95? What's going to bring it about? Maybe some of us are inclined to say, well, we'll ask God for help and, and we'll ask for more power. And when we get more power, then God will, will, will just make us into the, the people that he wants us to be. You know? and until then, I'm just going to kind of wait for the power to come on me. And, and when that happens, then for sure I'll change. But 
But they, you know, until then, I just can't do it. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I, I won't do it. I just, I'm just the way I am. It's just me, and it's what it's got to be. But let me ask you this. If you're a believer here, if you were a believer in 1994, didn't you have that same power in 94? Didn't you have the same power in 93? Wasn't that power already there in 92? The first time you ever became a believer in 89, wasn't that power there? Haven't we been learning? For those of you who have been a part of this series that we've been preaching on, haven't we been learning from the book of Ephesians that virtually everything you're ever going to get in the Christian life, all the power you're ever going to get in the Christian life, the whole of God's inheritance in the Christian life comes to you the moment you believe. You get, as we've been saying, the whole Ferrari. It's all set to drive. It's all souped up. The engine is there. You've got all you're going to get the minute you believe. You're as saved as you're ever going to get and as holy as you're ever going to get and as filled with the Spirit as you're ever going to get the moment you believe. The power has been there all along. It's not an issue of getting more power. The question is, what are you going to do with the power that you've got? And here I want to confront a confusion that we very frequently have. We sometimes think that the power of God is something that happens to us. But if we're more biblical about the way we speak about it, we'd say that the power of God, if you're a believer, is something that happens through you. Work out your salvation, the Bible says, for it is God who works in you. Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And we saw that in Ephesians chapter 3. The power of God works through us. And so it comes to be this. If the reservoir of God's, if you picture God's power, God's spirit as a reservoir, an infinite reservoir of resources in your life, the channel it has got to go through is you. God is not going to make you a robot. He's not going to make you an automaton. He doesn't want to do that. He wants your will to yield. And that is, as it were, the faucet, the tap that turns on the power of God that can begin to bring about change in your life. However the power of God, the joy of God, the peace of God, the life of God, the life of Jesus Christ, however that's going to flow in your life, it's going to flow through one single tunnel, and that tunnel is your will. The variable in this whole thing then is not how much power do you have, you've got it. It's not how much resource do you have, you've got it. The variable is what do you will, how much are you going to yield, how much are you going to turn the faucet on, or how much are you going to get the clogs, the thing that clog up the faucet, that, that, that allows the Spirit of God to move in your life, how much are you going to let it be clogged by your own will? This shows the need for times in our life. Here's what I'm getting at, folks. The time, there's, uh, there's a need. A big need for times in our life where we take inventory like this and ask very honestly, very seriously, almost ruthlessly the question, what in my life does God want to work on right now? And the power to get rid of it is there, but it's been there all along, like, like Dorothy in Toto in Kansas. It's been there. They were home all along. The question is, how much are you going to live in the dreamy state of your self-lordship? Oh, I kind of like that analogy. It just came to me, and I, it... it I don't know if he got it or not, but, you know, she was at home all along. She just needed to wake up to that fact, and so it is with us. You've got it right now. The question is, are you going to yield to that? Are you going to yield to that? It's not a matter of how much God are you going to get, but how much of you is God going to get? Now, here's the problem, folks. The will is the issue, but we tend to will, don't we? We tend to will according to what we're used to willing. We're creatures of habit. We tend to will things habitually. 
A person may say, I want to quit smoking. I want to quit smoking. I really do. I don't like this tar and nicotine, the smell and all that kind of stuff. I want to quit smoking. And yet they habitually choose to smoke. Every time they pick up a cigarette, they, they're, they're choosing it. Now they've chosen it so much it doesn't feel like they're choosing it. They don't even have to think about it to choose it anymore. But you are choosing it. No one's choosing it for you. You are choosing it. But you're used to that. And it feels weird not to choose that. We choose according to habit. Someone may say, well, I want to spend more time with my wife and I want to spend more time with my kids. My kids, excuse me. And yet they habitually choose to stay that hour later at work. They habitually choose to go out with their friends four nights a week because that's what they're used to. We choose according to habit. A person may say, well, I really want to have more time with the Lord. I want to have some quality time with the Lord. And yet you habitually choose to make everything else in your life a priority. You do choose it. It doesn't feel like you choose it because you're so used to choosing it. You habitually choose it, but you are choosing it however much you may want to choose otherwise. So the question comes to mean this. How do we break a chain of choosing that sets itself up as a stronghold against the faucet of God in our life? And the answer to that, I submit to you, and it's found throughout Scripture, is that there needs to be times where we make a resolve in our life. A vow, the Bible calls it. A covenant, the Bible also calls it. A moment of truth decision whereby we decide to fix our mind, fix our heart, fix our perception on this course of action as opposed to this course of action and to yield to God who is within us to begin to bring that about about as a reality in our life. It's the kind of thing that we see Daniel doing right here, a resolve. Daniel had a lot of reasons to give in to the Babylonian culture, to give in to Nebuchadnezzar. For one thing, if you didn't do that, you could very easily, even likely, get yourself killed. But at the very best, you're going to miss out on a lot of good food, a lot of good steaks, a lot of good pork, a lot of good wine. There's a lot of good things here. The other Israelites aren't getting it. They're a bunch of captives, but you're special. You're somebody special. The king has chosen you. He wants you to be a ruler. There's a lot of perks in this deal, Daniel, if you'll just go along with this. But Daniel, out of fidelity to God's call, out of fidelity to the law of God, made a resolution in his life. And the resolution was, I am not going to defile myself I'm not going to look like the world. I'm not going to look like Babylon. I'm not going to look like them because God called me to something different. And here's my resolution. It's not, I'm not going to budge. This is a done deal. Throw me in the lion's den if you need to, but I am not going to budge on it. My mind's made up. I'm single-minded in this. I'm fixed. And the result of that, as is always the result of that, is that God blessed him. When we make a resolution like that and change tracks and decide to... Get out of a pattern of decision-making that blocks the faucet of God. You know what happens? The faucet of God begins to flow. I don't know if you've ever had this, but sometimes I, I've had this happen to me. I know of other people who've had it happen to them. It's probably happened to many of you, but sometimes you make decisions in your life, resolves in your life, resolutions in your life before God. And maybe they were even a little bit stupid, but the very fact that you kept them, God honors that and blesses you for that. I don't know if there's any way to get the kind of blessing that the Bible talks about other than having your mind made up, having this fixed. One thing the Bible talks a little bit about, and it's a big part of the church tradition, is called fasting. We in our culture, I didn't plan on talking about this, but let me just throw this out as a little tiny perk, and we're going to get back to it some other time. I think we can get to it in chapter 5 in the book of Ephesians. But the Bible talks a little bit about this, bringing your body into subjection. Your body was never supposed to control you, you know that? 
The order is supposed to be our spirit, our mind, and our body. And the higher one controls the lower one. But we in our culture are used to giving into our body whenever our body whines. As I'm hungry, we're used to feeding it. I'm thirsty, we're used to giving a drink. Our body is a big baby and we're used to just pampering all the time, which is why it's so hard for us, why it's so far hard for us to bring it into subjection when it wants to do something ungodly. One way of doing that, the Bible says, it's kind of a resolution. It's declaring a fast. I am, for the sake of discipline, going to go a day or two days or three days without food just so I can bring my body into subjection. That's the kind of thing we're talking about, and there is an incredible reservoir of blessing that awaits a person who does that, as Daniel saw here. But throughout the Bible, you see this. There are, the way we grow, the way we progress in the spiritual walk, the stepping stones are moments of truth decisions. We just decide it's going to be different, and the power of God begin to walk that way rather than the other way. Think about salvation. Salvation's like this. God wants all people to be saved. God has made a provision for all people to be saved. The reason why some are saved and some aren't isn't because God loves certain people more than other people. The variable in this thing is a person's will. The Bible says that you need to repent. You need to convert. Both terms, terms mean to make a turn. Metanoia is the, is, the, is the Greek word. It means to do an about face. You were walking this direction, now you walk in this direction. And this direction is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You make a vow, you make a covenant, you make a resolution in your mind that now you're not going to be lord of your own life, but Jesus Christ is going to be lord of your own life. And that not only has lifelong repercussions, one decision, it has lifelong repercussions, but it has eternal repercussions, and it all hangs on one decision. God wages a lot on life-changing decisions that we make. Not only when we get saved, but even afterwards. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, the Lord uh, talks to the seven churches of uh, Asia Minor. And he, in various ways, says this. You know what, you guys? I stand at the door, and I'm knocking on your door. Revelation, chapter 3. Because you've lost your first love. You've started enjoying the, uh, the, the pleasures of the world. You started getting kind of slick on me. You started kind of conforming to the Babylon all around you. You lost your first love. I want you, and he says this in various ways in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. I want you to make a decision here. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Follow me now. Yield to me now. The Lord is calling believers. They're all believers. He's calling them on to a deeper walk a greater conformity to Jesus Christ, calling them back to the original covenant, calling them back to their first love. For believers, too, the way we grow is by making, at times in our life, resolutions where it's going to be different. We're going to yield. We're not going to hold out any longer. You see this all throughout the Old Testament, folks. It's the pattern in Israel's life. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, you find this. God calls Israel. Israel follows God. Israel stops following God. God calls Israel. Israel follows God. Israel stops following, following God. God calls Israel, and it goes on and on. Throughout the Old Testament, time and time and time again, you get this. God calls Israel to repentance, to make a decision, to give up the idols, to forth the ways of the other cultures, to renew their covenant and fidelity to God. Calling them to make a decision. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. Sell out. Go deeper. Go Go longer. Go farther with God. You find it throughout the whole of Scripture. You find saints of God making vows before God. Do you know what I found this week? I never knew this. It blew me away. And it kind of, it's kind of scary to me. But I'll share it with you so you get scared. But it's like, it's this. The Bible has an incredible amount to say about resolutions, about vows. 
Some of it's really weird. Do you know there's a whole book of the Bible that is written on vows? Numbers chapter 30. Read about it. When a vow is valid, when a vow is not valid. Deuteronomy 23, Proverbs 30, they all speak about vows. They speak about the need to make vows in our ongoing relationship with God. We say out loud, we make a decree that we are going to be this and thus and so with regard to God. Because it's a part of our covenanting relationship. That's what a covenant is. God vows this, we vow this. There's a tremendous stress put on the need for vows, but a tremendous stress put also on, on the need to keep the vows that we make. And some warnings about breaking vows. And the picture I get is that once you make a vow, even if it wasn't, even if God didn't tell you to make the vow, once you make it, you've got to keep it. God takes our word very importantly. And I think the reason for that is this. The reason why the Bible puts so much stress upon vows is because one of the main reasons we don't make vows or we don't keep vows is because we don't take them seriously. Our whole culture doesn't take vows. Our, you know, being a person of your word doesn't take it seriously. doesn't take discipline very seriously. The Bible has the opposite view. When you say it, do it. When you, if you speak it, live it. A tremendous put, stress put on vows because they're very important. Unless... Unless there are stepping stones in our life where we come to the altar of God and we say, God, you get this chunk of me that you didn't have before. Unless there are times like that where we make up our mind, reconsecrate ourselves, recommit ourselves. Unless there are times in our life where we take honest inventory and make radical life-changing decisions that are, in fact, going to impact the way we live and impact the way we relate and impact the way we think, unless we're willing to do that. You know what, folks? Our Christianity will just go on and on and on and on in the same mundane sameness, dreary mediocrity that it's always been. In fact, if you try to coast in the Christian life, you always coast downward. Because there's a force in the world that is very intent. If you're not intent on growing in God, there is a force that is very intent on you backsliding with God, on ruining your witness, ruining your use for the kingdom. And if you try to coast, just go on the same ordinary kind of Christianity, ordinary religiosity, you are going to coast downward and you will not even notice it. There's a downward pull in this world. If you are not making resolute decisions to go in a different direction, to grow, to make 95 a more vibrant, passionate year than 94 was, if you're not having that kind of intentionality, I can assure you that 95 will be less of a year than 94 was, but you won't notice it. Like a frog boiling in water, you just sort of gradually get used to the whole thing. Like a marriage that's losing its passion and romance, your relationship with God starts to die. There's got to be times where we make covenants, vows, resolutions, where we reconvert. I don't know about you, but my, my walk with God is not a sort of you know, steady upward climb. I doubt yours is too. I, 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 the way mine goes, I bet the way most of yours go, if it's growing, is, is it, goes, it goes like this. It goes down, and then it goes up. It goes down, boom. And then it goes up hella higher. And it goes down, and goes up. Mr. Yo-Yo. But the thing is, is that, that I think is the way, if you look at, at the Old Testament, that's the way Israel went too. 
There's a natural downward pull. And what puts it in check, what keeps it from, from going further, is a resolution of the will. Your mind's made up. The double-minded man, James says, the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. If we don't have times where we take inventory and get single-minded about the Christian life, reconsecrate our life to God, surrender whatever the Spirit's telling us to surrender to God, if we don't have times where we do that, we do not grow, we do not progress in the Christian life, we're always unstable in our ways. The difference between... Hear me now on this. Thank you. Thank you. Can I get another one? (laughs) I I, I hear that. I want to raise it one amen. The difference between the Christian who's on fire for God and the one who's just kind of going along, taking a pew space. Thank God for, for the fact that they're at least in church. Praise the Lord for that. But the difference between the two is not that one's got more of God than the other. One's got more power of God than the other. Uh, they both got a Ferrari. The difference, the variable is the will. The will. And the reason why some Christians can be used of God and are, are on fire for God and, and, and operate in the gifts of the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, while other Christians always stay in a perpetual state of infancy, never growing, always, always sitting just kind of on the fence, always in the land of mediocrity, never moving into the supernatural dimension. The reason why there can be this great disparity between the two has got nothing to do with the fact that God favors some over others, but it's got everything to do with this. How made up is your mind? How how resolved are you? How sold out are you? How much is your faucet empty? How well does it flow? What is clogging the faucet? That's what it's all about. It's in the will. That's the variable. And there's got to be times where you take inventory of that because it just doesn't go away by itself. Radical times of self-confrontation where we make up a mind and resolve and yield to the power of God that's within us. And this is as good a time of year as any to ask the serious question, what does God want to work on now. Let me just close by giving you a couple tips on this. A couple tips. Number one, don't be frivolous with this. Don't be frivolous. The Bible says it is a snare and a folly for a person to reflect on a vow after it's been made. This is the old honeymoon anxiety trip. (laughs) Um, Reflect on the vow before you make it. Is this something that you, in fact, are going to consecrate yourself before God to work on? All right? Only God can tell you, only the Spirit can tell you what it is that He wants to work on in your life. I can't tell you that. No one else can tell you that. The Lord can tell you that. You probably, if you're honest with yourself, already know what it is. As I'm talking here, you know what it is. Secondly, secondly, get a picture of, of, of what it is that you'll look like without this obstacle in your life, what it is that you'll look like, and let that be your motivation. In fact, let me say this as part of, motiv- uh, part of motivation. When it comes to changing your life, changing tracks, going in a different direction, the motivation cannot be fear. The motivation cannot be self-disgust. The motivation cannot be trying to get points with God and becoming more holy. Those motivating things don't last. I've tried them all a lot. And they don't last. They work for a week or so, but then you're the same old self. The motivation that moves the Christian onward, that gives the Christian hunger, that gives the Christian, makes the Christian thirsty for more of God, that leads the Christian to crucify yourself, is the love of God. That you are loved by God, that you love yourself as a creature of God, and that you want the faucet of God's love to flow through you without any blockage. That's the motivating factor. Number three, know that it's going to be tough. We're creatures of habit, and when we try to change, it doesn't come easy. 
It will feel weird. It will feel awkward. It may feel painful. It didn't come easy to Daniel. There may be a price. In fact, saints of God, there is always a price. The church history has always seen this. Salvation comes absolutely for free. What you do with it is a matter of your choice. And you've got to be overhauled. And that hurts. It really is true in the Christian life. No pain, no gain. But let me tell you, folks, the gain is worth the pain. To walk in the Spirit and to know the blessing. Let that faucet flow is well, well worth it. But you'll never see it unless you turn it on and surrender and crucify yourself. Of course it's going to hurt. What do you expect? Paul said, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Paul said, I crucify myself daily. I don't know about you, but crucifying, crucifixion doesn't sound like a very pleasant experience. But that's what we're to be a part of. And yet, it's a joyful thing when we do it. Finally, finally, I close with this. Probably the thing that we worry about most, as you're sitting here, if you're like me, the thing that you're worried about most is fear of failure. How many times have you resolved in the past to make, to make a change and it hasn't happened? Your fear of try, you're afraid of trying because you might fail. Let me just say this. If you make a vow and you fail, a week from now, two weeks from now, in fact, on some of these things, you're probably going to fail because you'll forget about it. Trying to change your attitude on things, whatever. When you have failed, you have... Resist. Resist the enemy who says you're, you're a failure. Resist the enemy that says, see, it was a stupid vow. Resist the enemy that says, see, you cannot change. If you're trying to change, let's say, a personality characteristic, and a week from now you fail on that and you blow it and you lose your temper or whatever it is, the enemy will come and say, you know what, see, you can't do it. You'll never change. You're always the same. But think about this. This week you have, you have made about 50 decisions in the right direction based on your resolution, and now there's one failure. That doesn't sound like a very bad record to me. And now pick up and go on. You're farther ahead than you would have been had you never made the vow in the first place. It may, you may struggle. You may fall. You may skin your knees. Repent of that, which means to turn from that and pick up where you're left off. But don't give up. It is better to have tried and failed than to never have tried. Boy, that's an original cliche if I ever heard one. But it's true. So, folks... This New Year's beginning of 95, let's take inventory and be honest with God. And when, when God says, when God says, this has to go or this should change, whatever. He does it out of love. He does it for our benefit. He works within us. But you know what? If we see straightly, we understand that really we have no choice but to obey. God has rights over us. And that makes it easier. That makes it easier. If God says it's got to go, well, then you can't talk about it anymore. It's done. If you have that attitude, you know what? It's easier. What makes vows hard is when we keep on talking to ourselves, trying to struggle to change and all that kind of stuff. Sell out. Let's let 95 be a sellout year. Father, Father, we bless you. We praise you. We worship you. Because you are so good. You've been so good. I thank you, Lord, for this body of people that you're putting together that we call Woodland Hills. I thank you for them, Lord God. I thank you for what you're doing in our lives. I pray, God, that this would be a turbo year. Hallelujah. A year that we just fly forward and fast. Lord God, let your spirit be upon us. Let your spirit be upon every individual as we go into this year, Lord God. Give us the courage to follow you and to pay the price of discipleship, Lord God, knowing, Lord God, that the glory and inheritance that follows such a resolution is well worth it. 
In your name we pray.